Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Yeah, it feels, to me, so I'm, I'm pretty into sci-fi type things, and I always felt like I was diving on Europa, <laughs> because you descend through, you know, 10, 15 meters of ice, and then you get below this ice barrier, and you have all of these crazy colors coming at you from this dark sediment, everything that is really far away also seems really close. You have seals that are moving through the water making this really weird like pinging noise, and it's just super extraterrestrial. Kia ora, no mai harumai ki tō tātou au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Clark and Cannon Thernay. Antarctica is an extreme place that pushes life to the limits. Today, two stories of unexpected life and what we can learn. First, Dr. Sarah Seabrook is a marine microbial ecologist at NIWA, and diving in one place in Antarctica for her PhD research allowed her to imagine what it might be like to dive on Europa, one of Jupiter's icy moons. It's on a cinder cone off of Mount Erebus, and it's a pretty cool environment because with it being this super volcanic setting, it's really kind of alien-like and extreme down there in a lot of ways, you know? Um, It's really steep, so when you go through the ice, you kind of can see down almost 400 meters, it feels like, just down into the abyss. The water's so clear and crisp, and you have this really dark sediment that's associated with the volcanism of Mount Erebus that kind of everything else contrasts to. So visually, it's, you know, so much going on. But one of the most striking things that Sarah saw was a bright white mat like a layer of snow on top of this dark volcanic sediment. A mat that a team of researchers had come across years before. In 2012, a super serendipitous event happened where this dive site that is routinely dove upon and the team went down there, first dive of the season, they saw this huge microbial mat that had appeared on the sediment. They knew this was new because this site has been dove at since 1968, almost every year, and there was no huge microbial mat there. And then all of a sudden, pop, there's this massive microbial mat. And what could attract a mat of microbes to this area? Well, uh, one reason might be a methane seep. A methane seep is an area where methane-rich fluids are percolating through the seafloor and coming out to shape really unique dynamic ecosystems where life can thrive on food that's produced in ways we never thought possible. You don't need any sunlight, you don't need anything that makes the food that we eat or that most of the life we know about on Earth eats, but instead it, it's formed in this very like alien-like way. 
I say methane, she says methane. I think it's a tomato-tomato thing. Anyway, methane is a gas, one carbon atom bound with four hydrogens. And you've probably heard of it in the context of it being a powerful greenhouse gas. It's 25 times more powerful at warming our planet than carbon dioxide is. So we're getting increasingly interested in methane. At the last COP26 uh, summit, they saw these decisions coming out by governments around the world to try and reduce methane emissions by 2030 because everyone's getting a little bit more concerned about, you know, in these next 20 years, these next 50 years, could methane become this really big problem and how can we address it. Methane's lifetime in the atmosphere is much shorter than carbon dioxide's, but it can cause a lot of warming while it's about. In Aotearoa, we talk a lot about the methane emissions from farming. It's produced in the stomachs of livestock. But methane is also the main component of natural gas and can be made in a different way. So this methane comes from really, really old, ancient plants, basically. So millions and millions of years ago, forests and phytoplankton in the ocean, so just that life that's living on the surface of the ocean, were buried within the Earth's crust. And over time, those old plants moved deeper and deeper through the Earth's crust, getting super high pressure and temperature put on them, and they were converted into these gas. So you have methane and you have other carbon forms, such as what powers our cars and our houses and things like that. And over time, that methane slowly starts working its way back up to the surface of the ocean and other environments. So methane seeps occur where there are fissures in the seafloor caused by tectonic plate activity, which of course there's plenty of happening around Aotearoa. We have thousands of methane seeps, particularly on the Hikarangi margin uh, along the east coast of New Zealand. We have tons and tons and tons of methane seeps. And and there you have, again, that perfect uh, combination of a lot of productivity that occurs in this region and also the burial of of oceanic plates underneath um, continental plates. We're at this this plate boundary there along the Hikarangi margin. You, um, this, that's for the same reason that we get earthquakes from from um, that region of, of Zealandia. You also get carbon being buried. And are these then releasing methane into the atmosphere? Is this something that we should be concerned about? So it can, but normally these really awesome microbes prevent that from happening. And we call these microbes uh, ecosystem engineers because of their ability to trap this methane for us. And when they trap this methane, they turn it into food for other animals, they turn it into rock that other animals can live on, and overall perform this super, super important function. But we've seen that it doesn't happen the same everywhere, and the dynamics of it can vary a lot. So in the most ideal scenario, up to 90% of the methane that's coming out of the seafloor can be trapped by these microbes at the site. But sometimes you don't have as efficient of a sediment filter formed in some sites, and you can have more methane escaping that process. 
which brings us back to the microbial mat found by that team of researchers in 2012. Because of these super cool microbes that work at these sites, uh, you, you get a few habitats that kind of develop. You can have microbial mats, which are often these white, fluffy mats that appear on the surface of the sediment. You can have clam beds, which are these really unique clams that have kind of symbionts that live within them. Or you can have these really big tube worm bushes or things like that. And so you, you have these visual indicators of seepage that before you sample, before you do anything, you can see in a marine environment and think, ah, there it looks like there's a methane seep here, right? And so 2011, just as they had since 1968, they were at this site and it was just normal sediment. You know, there was no fluffy microbial mat, nothing like that. 2012, they go down and there's this 100 meter long white fluffy microbial mat covering the surface of the sediment. Now at this time, Sarah was still doing her undergraduate degree. But Dr. Andrew Thurber of Oregon State University was down there, spotted this mat, and he was really excited by this find. He looked for some funding to study it further, which worked out well for Sarah. By the time then I started my PhD in 2015, he was able to have funding for us to go down there in 2016 and do a whole whole suite of analyses to try and confirm if this was a methane seep and look at the implications of that. The team collected sediment cores from the area and fluid coming out from the seep. They then analysed these to confirm that indeed it was methane coming out. So this 2016 dive and subsequent research was the start of Sarah's interest in this area, but far from the end. When I moved here to New Zealand two years ago to start a postdoctoral position, I was trying to really engage with the New Zealand science community, create new collaborations, things like that. And the paper reporting these findings was just coming out around this time. And so then in a conversation with some colleagues here, I was able to learn that they had actually seen another site that looked really similar to what we were seeing here at Cinder Cones at another area in Antarctica, but it had never been investigated before, Uh, yet they had samples that they had kept frozen in the freezer since 2006. And so we actually have some of these sediments down in the freezer if you'd like to come look at them. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. I caught up with Sarah at the Niwa building at Evans Bay in Tafanganui Tara, Wellington. We head down from her office through the maze of corridors and stairs to a lab space with a tall freezer standing at the back. We have these samples here in a minus 80, which is super deep freeze, uh, able to keep things preserved for a really, really long time in the state that we were found them in when they were first collected. So we can open up the freezer here, which is always a bit of a pull because it kind of seals itself shut real tight. And you can see all of the ice kind of everywhere along the freezer. Um, And plastic bags with sed written on it, I guess is sediment, sediment, right? Sediment, yeah. So there's tons and tons of sediment. These bags are actually from the Hickory Margin Methane Seeps here. Um, And then there's tons of other samples throughout here. There's some animals. We have some water filters, uh, stuff from all the way up the very tip top of the Zealandia zone, all the way down to Antarctica and everywhere else. So here, we have all of the samples from uh, 
2006. So the, a team of newer scientists led by Von der Cummings, who's, who's a scientist here, were down there looking at the benthic ecology in Terranova Bay, which is a bay in the Ross Sea of Antarctica. And when they were down there, they were similarly diving along, collecting samples on a completely different question, and then just as serendipitously came across this really beautiful white microbial mat covering the seafloor. Of course, this was in 2006, so the microbial mat underwater near Mount Erebus hadn't even appeared yet, much less been analysed and shown to be a methane seep. But this dive team were equally captivated by the striking sight, so they scooped some samples to bring back and put in this freezer. But then when the work came out from Oregon State, where we were able to see that there is actually methane seepage occurring at shallow depths in the Antarctic marine environment, what they saw in Terranova Bay became a lot more significant, right? And fortunately, they had kept the samples since 2006 in the freezer and after some conversations, it was like, awesome, let's try and see if we can get some funding to look at these samples and see if this too was a methane seep. And so, with these samples, let's see. So they're all in these little plastic tubes with yellow caps, and there's just very little amounts of sediment in all of them. Yeah, it's really dark. It's too late for us to try and measure methane from these samples because all of that methane by principles of diffusion would kind of be gone by now. But the isotopes of that methane could still remain. So we'll take the sediment and we're going to look at the isotopes of carbon within the sediment. And what we're looking for is a depletion in heavy carbon. And then we're also going to look at the microbes. So we have extracted the DNA from the sediment and we're going to target this super variable gene that can allow us to identify the species of bacteria and archaea that are in the sediment to try and see if we can find indicator microbes of methane seeps. Is this site still there? Who knows? It might be. Uh, I don't think anyone's been down there in a very long time, but it very well could be. So if your results come back with indicators that it could be a methane seep, then you'd be keen to go back there? And oh, definitely. It'd be super cool to go back there and see if, if it was still pumping methane out, if um, we can ask additional questions such as, you know, if methane is coming out in Terranova Bay, can we look at other animals that are around and figure out if they're consuming any of the food produced by the methane seep? It's actually been a while since Sarah and I caught up. And COVID delays have meant that she hasn't yet got the microbe results from the DNA back. But the isotopic analysis does indicate methane. So she's fairly confident that this was another methane seep site. For Sarah, these individual sites are of course interesting, but they've led her to another question. What's going on on the larger scale? Antarctica used to be a forest, lush with trees and plants and other things. And all of that old plant life has since been buried beneath the continent, locked into permafrost. That permafrost, as it melts, 
how is it going to come out and interact with the atmosphere? Is it something that we need to be concerned about as a potential route for enhanced warming beyond what is caused just by our own emissions, right? One potential pathway for that methane that will be coming out of permafrost and these old, old carbon reserves in the Antarctic continent is that it can come out through the ocean through this kind of land-sea connectivity regime. On a research voyage last year on the Tangaroa vessel in the Ross Sea, they had another intriguing finding. We were doing some mapping with the ship where we just send down sound pulses and try and map the seafloor. And also uh, those sound pulses can reflect off of things like whales or fish and kind of kind of help you figure out um, some of the ecosystem structure in the water. And then it, they can also reflect off of bubbles or really weird fluids that are coming out of the seafloor that have a different density to the surrounding sea water. And so we were doing that and we got this really cool plume that came up in the acoustics and we were excited by it enough that we put our towed camera system down and we explored along the seafloor and we found this really sharp transition from the background environment where you can see all of these different sponges and corals and other animals that are really typical of the Antarctic seafloor down there and those disappeared as we approached this plume that was coming out of the seafloor, and we got these really alien-like tunicates, these kind of translucent blobs, right at the kind of the periphery of where we knew that the plume was based on our acoustics, and then in the center of the seep, we just had this really dark, rich sediment and the shimmering in the water that was really strange. But we, till today, we aren't sure what's coming out of the seafloor here. And we're hoping to go back down there in 2023 and figure out what exactly is happening here and how is it similar or different to what we're seeing at these sites where methane's coming out. The climate is changing, Antarctica will too. What does this mean for carbon release in the Ross Sea? If we get more warming and an increase in these methane seeps, how will this impact marine life? and change the marine environment. If that's happening, it could have a really big impact on our atmosphere. But if when it happens, these microbes come in and settle the communities and trap all that methane, turn it into food, then it could actually be kind of a positive thing in some aspects for the ecosystem moving forward. Since there's expected to be a decrease in food production from sun-derived food products and photosynthetic food sources in future climate scenarios. We could perhaps see these methane seeps that might appear in the marine environment or could already exist in the marine environment and we just don't know about them, becoming this alternative food source for animals down there. And that would be really a net positive thing that could alleviate some stress on the marine ecosystem down there. This is what Sarah wants to learn more about, and what she'll investigate in her next research voyage to Antarctica in 2023. Thanks to Dr. Sarah Seabrook, microbial ecologist at NIWA. Now, instead of a water world under the ice, our next Antarctic mystery comes from the driest, harshest place on this frozen continent. The dry valleys are these snow and ice-free valleys where basically there's, there's winds, kabatic winds, 
are so high that any moisture that falls, which is going to be falling as snow, sublimes immediately. So it's bare rock and sediment and it's sort of it's a valley obviously and then it's surrounded on the sides by by mountains so you've got this really bare really cold rock surfaces and then in the Antarctic summer this is going to be bombarded by sunlight as well. That's Dr. Adele Williamson, a senior lecturer at the University of Waikato. She's a biochemist who works on DNA repair pathways in bacteria and recently she's turned her attention to those bacteria who call these dry valleys home. For a long time, actually, we didn't think there were any life forms in the dry valleys. And the reason for that is that most of what we considered to be microbes that we could see was actually stuff that we could grow. So people went there and they tried to grow microbes that they isolated from the dry valleys and they couldn't get anything to grow. And that's because these microbes have become so specialised and so attuned to surviving in these really, really harsh conditions that actually they weren't happy living on in this sort of comfortable situation that we could give them in the lab. So, yep, these microbes are able to survive in extremely dry and extremely cold temperatures and also with temperature fluctuations. And they're really, really slow growing, so they'll have periods where they're not really doing much of anything, they're just sitting there, and then when the conditions come right, for example, the temperature warms up a little bit, maybe a little bit of moisture comes into the soil, and then they'll be able to replicate. Against all these challenges, these bacteria have figured out a way to live and to multiply, to make copies of and pass on their DNA. Even in the dry valleys where their DNA would be under constant bombardment. As humans, we know that there are certain things that damage our DNA. UV light, for example. We wear sunscreen and stay out of the midday sun to avoid DNA damage and mutations that might lead to skin cancer. There are also certain toxins and chemicals that we know can damage our DNA, as well as byproducts of the normal energy-making processes in our cells. Bacteria have got some other challenges as well because they're unable to regulate the environment around themselves in the way we can. They're very much at the mercy of, of the temperature, of the pH, of the salinity. One really big factor for microbes is desiccation. So this is when they dry out because this can be particularly damaging to their DNA. So both us humans and bacteria, and in fact every other living thing, has to deal with the reality of DNA damage. Luckily, cells come equipped with a set of tools for this. DNA repair is the process that all organisms use to basically fix damage that's happened to our genetic material because there's, there's a couple of reasons you might want to do this. One reason is, is that if your DNA is damaged, then it can't be used as a template for transcription for producing proteins and also importantly can't be replicated and if a cell can't replicate its DNA then that cell's going to die. So in a multicellular organism like us, maybe one cell having damage that can't reproduce isn't such a problem. But for bacteria, that's a huge problem because, of course, if one bacterial cell can't replicate, then it can't, can't continue to live. In humans, obviously, the issue is different, that if the damage isn't repaired correctly, then this can lead to a mutation that can cause problems like cancer, for example. So issues with DNA repair means possible cancer for humans, but certain death for bacteria. Which is why Adele wanted to study these toughest of the tough, extreme bacteria, because she reckoned they might have some different tricks up their sleeves. We've known a lot of things about bacterial DNA for a long time. 
but the organisms that we knew about are what we call model organisms. So this is things like E. coli, which we'll all be familiar with as, as a gut bacterium, for example. We, we track E. coli in, in waste, water and food contamination because it's a faecal bacterium. But the reason we know a lot about E. coli is it's extremely easy to grow and it grows really well in really comfortable conditions. So warm temperatures, rich media, and it grows to very, very high density and pure culture. Since we've had access to genome sequencing on a much wider scale, so we've been able to go out and actually read the genome of different bacteria all over the place, we've come to realise that E. coli is just giving us a glimpse of the possibility of the ways that bacteria do things, including the different ways that they can repair their DNA. And so we asked the question, OK, we, we know how a few organisms do it, organisms that live a very comfortable life. How are bacteria that live in some of the harshest, most difficult conditions repairing their DNA? Because we speculate, and it's come to pass, that they do have some really different and really superior systems for doing this. While the dry valleys do sound like a delightful place to visit, Adele has never actually been there. Like she said, these microbes don't grow easily in the lab, which means you have to be crafty about ways to study them. In Adele's case, they're using metagenomics. Metagenomics means the genome of everything, the genome of everything in an environment. So we're taking our soil or sediment sample, for example, extracting all of the DNA out of that sample. So if you imagine that you've got thousands and thousands of bacterial cells, maybe hundreds or thousands of different species in there, we're extracting all of that pooled DNA and then we're sequencing all of that. So we're getting this, this snapshot of the genetic content of everything that's living in that environment. And that's my starting point for the work that I'm doing. So Adele's colleague and collaborator, Dr. Craig Carey, collected some samples down there. And this is part of a really big microbial ecology survey that they're doing, where they're getting an overview of what types of microbes survive there and how these interact with each other. So I'm basically leveraging all the data that he was collecting as part of that, and I'm honing in on the enzymes and then honing in even further on the particular enzymes that are involved in DNA repair. These enzymes involved in DNA repair are the protein tools in the cell, each with its own part of the job to do. There are the nucleases. They work like scissors to chop the DNA strand on either side of the part to be fixed. Polymerases then copy off the second strand and fill in the correct sequence to fix the damage. And then you need the ligases. They glue back together the newly repaired strand to complete the repair. As in all things biology, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but these are the basic tools in the DNA repair kit. And because these basic tools look more or less the same across many organisms, Adele can use software to identify the genes that code for them. So she will search through the genome sequences from the Dry Valley microbes until she finds a DNA repair tool match. And once I have these genes, that's where, from my point of view, that's where it gets really fun. Because we grab these DNA sequences that encode the DNA repair proteins from Antarctica, and we pop them into our favourite model organism, E. coli, which is the one I mentioned before, that we're really, really good at growing in the lab. And then we trick the E. coli into producing these proteins for us. And not only do we trick the E. coli into making them for us, we trick the E. coli into making them in such an enormous amount 
that we can actually extract out these proteins and study them in the lab. So we can purify them out, look at them in the test tube, and then we also have a look at the three-dimensional structure using a variety of different methods to understand what they do and how they do it. It's crazy to me that, you know, you don't even have to go to Antarctica. You don't even need the microbe. You're just looking at the sequence of letters and from that you're able to recreate this protein that you find in the cell and study exactly what it does. Yep, it's pretty amazing. I mean, there's always uh, so, there's always some assumptions, of course. You have to assume that the E. coli does make the protein in exactly the same way. This is actually one of the biggest hurdles we've encountered in this project is that the DNA repair enzymes from Antarctic microbes will have evolved to work in these different conditions and in particular at lower temperatures. So we know that E. coli grows best at our body temperature, 37 degrees. Um, you can convince it to grow down to 15 degrees. It doesn't, it's not entirely happy about it. And to get it to produce enzymes which have evolved to function best at temperatures at times that are below zero, this can be very, very challenging. And so sometimes the E. coli will just produce, if you imagine that your folded protein is a beautiful piece of origami, sometimes E. coli produces something that looks a little bit more like the paper that gets jammed in your printer. And so this, this, is, this can be frustrating and we've got a range of tricks that we've been working with to, to um, convince the E. coli to produce us our lovely folded up proteins more nicely. But once we've got that, then yep, we can, we can look at the individual purified proteins and, and see how they work. In the lab investigating what some of these proteins do is PhD student Liz Razga-Smith. We can do a combination of activity assays where we want to see what our proteins will do when we combine them with damaged DNA substrates. If it's a ligase, it should be able to seal like the broken bonds and join it back together. If it's a nuclease, it'll do the opposite and you'll see the broken up strands. So what we do is we add a fluorescence tag onto the DNA and if the protein, say the ligase, is joining it back together, you should see a difference in the size. So you'll be able to visualise these DNA bands on a gel. We use urea gels. That just allows the separation of the DNA going through the gel and then you'll look for different sizes corresponding whether it's joined back together or not. One of the proteins that Liz is currently investigating is an interesting DNA ligase, which also has a DNA nuclease domain fused to it. So on paper, by DNA sequence, it looks like it's some kind of Swiss Army knife DNA repair combo protein. And Adele and Liz want to test its abilities. So what we speculate is that there's a direct process happening here where the nuclease is cutting out the damage and the ligase is jumping on and directly repairing or directly relinking that. And this makes a lot of sense, right? If you've got a damage in your DNA, you don't have a lot of resources to throw at it. Your most desperate, desperate thing that you need to do is actually get your DNA back into a situation where you're not going to die. So that might mean you don't care if you get mutations. You don't care if you've chopped out a bit of your DNA that maybe you'll need in the future. Right now, your most pressing issue is to make sure that if conditions come right, if it gets warm enough, if it gets just wet enough that you can replicate, that you can actually do that without a big honking damage sitting in the way or without your DNA being broken completely. And so that's what we speculate this enzyme is involved in doing. 
There are a whole range of enzymes that have come from bacteria that get used by scientists in the lab all the time. One example is a type of polymerase used in polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. PCR is a way of making copies of a piece of DNA or RNA, which everyone has probably heard of now because of PCR testing for COVID-19. Adele has a fundamental curiosity in how these bacteria actually survive and the neat DNA repair tricks they have. But she's also interested in whether they could provide the next handy tool for use in the lab. If we know how the proteins that we can look at in the lab now work, we can maybe alter their structure a little bit to get them to do things that we want them to do. So, for example, joining the kinds of DNA substrates that we would like them to be joining for things that that we want to do biotechnologically. Thanks to Dr. Adele Williamson and Liz Roska-Smith, both from the University of Waikato. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts at RNZ. Sound engineering was by William Saunders. If you want to keep up to date with the show, you can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. RNZ actually has a whole range of amazing podcasts and video series for you to explore. Right now, Robbie Nichol is back with a second season of the excellent Citizen's Handbook. Find it on the RNZ website under the Podcasts and Series tab, on YouTube or on tahi.fm. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.